therapy is not for illness, but it's for wellness. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most important relationships in your life and a relationship that can impact your health and well-being. What relationship is that? The relationship with your therapist. Oh, wow. Yeah. So whether you are actively in therapy or not, I think that there are some important points we want to make about how to know whether or not this therapist is right for you. So one of the most important things is just a very basic general logistical one where the therapist's office is, what kind of hours they keep, and whether or not you can reliably make it there on a weekly basis. Those are important considerations because a lot of people don't think about those things. As in other relationships, something seems really good or people are eager, they're not thinking clearly. But slow down a little bit. Think about, will this really work? Can I get there every day before I get invested too much? Let me find out about some of the logistical mm-hmm. issues. What are the fees? Is insurance involved? What, is, what scheduling is available? Right. And I think that's something that a lot of people are afraid to ask um, when they first connect with a therapist. But it's pretty routine, and I think it should be discussed in the initial consultation. Yeah, well, and I think it's also a way to find out how the therapist responds to you because as with any other relationship, both people are watching one another, appraising one another, assessing one another, sizing one another up. So if you're not too shy about asking the therapist the most important questions, you can see whether or not they handle them securely and find out whether their answers fit what you need. Yeah, I like that. And if the therapist has a problem with it, you know, and they seem really uncomfortable, then you're going to think about that. The other things that I think people want to consider are like general policies in terms of everything from cancellation to whether you can bring your emotional support animal to whether you can drink an iced coffee in the office. Yeah, well, you can't anticipate everything, but if there's any big things like that, you might want to check. Mm-hmm. A lot of therapists, for example, you can't really bring your child to therapy, but yeah. but some therapists will be okay with that. Uh, and sometimes you wait until something comes up and you, you navigate it together. And mm-hmm. one of the upsides of that is that you can learn and grow together in a sense that that's a therapeutic opportunity. One of the downsides, if there's a negative surprise, it can lead to a rupture. And again, you can make use of ruptures in therapy as developmental experiences, as growth experiences, Mm -hmm. but it can also derail the therapy. So if you can identify things up front that may derail the therapy and discuss them before you get too invested, Mm -hmm. that is a good idea. Yeah. And when you talk, I just want to back up for a second, because when you talk about a rupture, can you describe what you mean? Because- Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was like therapeutic jargon. The, The term is like rupture and repair, but basically it's like a disagreement. And so you have a relatively safe relationship with anyone and something comes up that leads to conflict and- confrontation. A lot of people are quote unquote confrontation avoidant. And how you work through that with your therapist is particularly important because it's not just how things look on the surface in therapy. There is the pragmatic aspect, but it's also like, what are you what are you learning from that process of navigating it? And going through something together with your therapist means that the experience is getting a bit deeper and, and closer in a professional way. Yeah. 
And I think that sometimes that's one of the trickiest things, right? Like conflict and confrontation. That's why a lot of people are in therapy to begin with. So I do feel like the therapist has to model a healthy way to discuss uncomfortable things. I think that's the ideal. And it depends on, you know, how you're trained. We're both trained in a psychiatric model with some psychoanalytic background, which emphasizes that kind of quote unquote holding environment or mm -hmm. containment. Therapists are expected to model mature behavior. We're expected to keep our needs appropriately contextualized in the therapy. We're not supposed to um, abuse our power or be manipulative. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're supposed to behave in an ethical and, and relatively controlled manner most of the time, right? But within that, there's room for spontaneity and creativity. Right. That's um, the title of a, a pretty well-known book in, in, in psychoanalysis in, in what's called the relational model because it's much more about the, the relationship mm -hmm. rather than a blank slate classical analytic model called ritual and spontaneity. So there's an idea that there's a frame and the frame is the, the safety and the, the pragmatic things as well as the psychological mm -hmm. context and the boundaries of the therapy. And then, you know, like a painting within the frame, the creative process takes place. I like that. It doesn't usually spill over the edge of the frame, but sometimes it does. And you can work with that unless it's too much. Right. And I think that one of the most important things to note about boundaries, because this is something that has come up a lot in my own work, the boundaries and the frame are in place really to protect the patient and to give a feeling of security and that it is the therapist's job to make the boundaries clear and be direct about things um, in a way that allows the patient to feel secure. Yeah, absolutely. That's the therapist's responsibility. Uh, yeah. Patients have responsibility as well. Yeah. And that's something that can be discussed and, and, and ought to be discussed yeah. uh, because it is, it is a process that's collaborative. In some sense, the ultimate responsibility lies with the therapist. Yeah. What would you say are the patient's responsibilities? Just showing up on time? Is that a pet peeve of yours? <laughs> no, not you don't at all, mind, You don't actually. mind lateness. You prefer it, I right? do. As um, long as they're later than I am. Well, I think whatever they've agreed upon um, as the way of working, so, you know, it's to uphold that and it's, it's, to, it's to say something if there's a change. In the traditional analytic model, which I think is very powerful in certain ways, the therapist's responsibility is to keep the frame and to listen without bias. But the patient's responsibility is to say whatever comes to mind. Don't edit yourself. That's called free association. And so the patient's ultimate responsibility is to be as open as you can be. Yeah, but that's sometimes very difficult to do. Right. That's considered like an achievement to be able to say whatever comes to mind, yeah. right? You don't expect anyone right. to do that right off the bat. And if they can, sometimes you wonder if they're too kind of um, unbounded in some way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Be clear about finances. That's an area yeah. that's tough for, for a lot of people, therapists and patient alike. Yeah. And if you don't make it clear what the policies are up front and you run into a surprise that you don't mm -hmm. like, uh, sometimes it can be helpful to talk through, but at other times it can really lead to um, like what we said, a rupture right. and sometimes can end a therapy. Right. And I think it's worth noting because I was really surprised to learn this in my training. I don't know who told me, but that the old school analysts would say that basically like you pay for your spot and you have that hour every week, a couple times a week. And that if you're going to be away, the analyst has to find someone to fill the spot or they charge you. So that's kind of like keeping someone on retainer, mm -hmm. which is not really done that much anymore, is it? 
Yeah, I don't know how common that is. I think there there are some analysts who still practice that way. But yeah, essentially, it's like leasing the analyst's time mm-hmm. for the whole year. And there's a responsibility for that time. And I don't know the history of how it was done that way, but probably it came from uh, Ger- German therapist mm-hmm. immigrants from, from Europe in the 40s who practice according to that model. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays, of course, people are much more flexible and there's more of a sense of egalitarianism, like right. keeping things fair. I think the other part is knowing how far in advance you have to cancel if it's like a regular like doctor's office type setup and knowing whether or not you have the option of a phone call if you're sick. Yeah. And there's there's sort of regulations and legalities around that and different therapists are more or less adherent to those regulations and guidelines. One of the important things is to spell it out ahead of time and make sure you're on the same page. Officially, you know, therapists certainly medical doctors are recommended to have a treatment agreement, mm-hmm. which the patient you know, can read all the terms ahead of time and sign it and agree or disagree. Um, and then they consent to the treatment. In practice, a lot of people don't use treatment agreements, which on one hand feels less formal and so it can mm-hmm. feel more comfortable. Yeah. But on the other hand, it does contribute a lot to that frame. It's very clear if you have a treatment agreement. There's no surprises and there's no room for needing to um, like litigate it within the session. There's no chance of bickering over it if it's pretty right. clear, or at least the person has had a reasonable chance to say, I don't like your policy there. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can you can always bicker later. <laughs> About something else. Well, that joke was telling because the point of the frame is so that the relevant issues don't get played out around the frame. Right. Like the podcast is called Doorknob Comments, which is a boundary mm-hmm. comment. But the point of a clear frame is so that the right stuff gets discussed where it belongs mm-hmm. and it, the meaning isn't displaced into other things. Right. So if someone's late and you know they're late every time because the train is always late, you start to wonder what's really happening. Is it something about how they feel about coming to therapy because the train can't always be late? Yeah. There are many different ways to arrive at desired therapeutic outcomes, a more secure, confident sense of self, better relationship and professional function, treatment of depression, anxiety and other conditions, reduced negative thinking, better self-understanding, and so on. Goals also evolve over the course of therapy, making defining goals itself one of the meta-goals of therapy. Therapies share common factors, the extent to which the therapist is supportive, empathetic, and validating. Some approaches are more directive, appearing to follow a recipe while still being very much about the therapeutic interaction. Others are more exploratory, like psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapies, focusing on developing insight, seeing how developmental patterns repeat, and using that awareness to change current behavioral patterns. Regardless of therapy type, therapeutic effectiveness is tied to the quality of the relationship between patient and therapist, what's called the therapeutic alliance, sometimes the therapeutic relationship. Therapy is very intimate in a way. But even for computer-based therapies, the way the interface is designed is a key aspect of whether people use it and how much they benefit, up to and including designing empathetic AI avatars to deliver doses of therapy. This is a controversial topic as to whether in-person therapy with a human uh, versus a computer-guided therapy is is the same. But those are the different kinds of therapy. So a psychiatrist is someone who's gone to med school, who then did training in a residency to become a psychiatrist where they learned about the different types of medicines available to treat depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, pretty serious stuff. Psychiatry starts out with med school. And so like the first thing you do is 
general, you know, gross yeah. anatomy, general medicine. And so it's a very different experience because, I mean, not, not to get morbid, but the first thing you do is dissect yeah. a, you learn anatomy on a, on, on a cadaver, right. which is an, a strong emotional experience as part of training that right. is often not discussed. That's true. So that's a big difference. Okay. And then you start in psychiatry on the units and you work with the quote unquote sickest patients right. first exactly. before you learn therapy. Right. Right, which I think is an important distinction to make. And then there are also psychiatric nurse practitioners. You could probably speak to that a little bit better, but they also prescribe psychiatric medicines. Yeah, psychiatric nurse practitioners and a psychiatric physician's assistants ultimately act as prescribers. Okay. Uh, but the training in general is, is not as extensive, depending on the amount of experience the person ultimately has. Okay. But the, the schooling is much shorter and the number of clinical hours is a lot less. Yeah. Um, there's a really big unmet need. Yeah. And so I think the best approach in some ways is having a team where people with different levels of expertise can work collaboratively. But those groups are all prescribing yeah. medications as okay. well as potentially doing right. therapy. Let's talk about psychologists. They and PsyDs, I guess, have a very different course of study where they basically learn about development. Right. That's a doctor of philosophy yeah. or a doctor of psychology. It's yeah. an academic training. They're much on average, better trained than psychiatrists off the bat with academic psychology. They may learn a lot more about human behavior. They're, they're going to learn more about psychological testing, like how, right. the, how the brain functions and how that can be measured. Psychiatrists and, and other medical people don't do that right. testing. Uh, psychologists do. Yeah. Uh, and their clinical experience comes later on in training typically and can be pretty diverse. Okay. But the intention is usually they're going to go into therapy or they're going to work in a, in an industrial organizational setting or okay. they could do sports th performance-based work. Psychologists have a, a different career track. It doesn't necessarily have to be kind of hardcore right. medical. Right. And then social workers and licensed mental health counselors can also... Yeah, social work school is established mm -hmm. longer than some of the uh, other master's degrees. Social workers come out of like a he like a healing service type of profession, uh, which, which is an another story about the origin of the professions. There's, you know, some work there. And social work school has typically been focused on service. And a lot mm -hmm. of social workers don't become therapists. They work right. as case managers. They yes. work in hospital settings. A lot of times they work in the community. They, they tend to be more pragmatic and sort yeah. of connected with the people. And then you're mentioning there's other degrees. And that varies from state to state as to who can okay. be licensed for what. So in New York, there's mental health counselors. There's licensed okay. psychoanalysts. There's okay. uh, there's um, creative arts therapists, there's yeah. family therapists, and they can get a master's level training. And again, there's a lot of variability in the clinical training. And a lot of it really just depends on the personality. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was a good point about the degree background, because it is something that people just they don't know. Right. And ask, yeah. ask your therapist where they went to school, what their training is, what yeah. is the difference, you know, do right. you prescribe, yeah. et cetera. How, are, how do you work? Um, yeah, there's different kinds of therapies, right? Psychoanalysis is like the original kind of general purpose therapy. Mm -hmm. Say everything that comes to mind. Don't edit yourself. I will listen non-judgmentally right. and periodically help you make sense of it. But I think that one of the reasons that psychoanalysis has fallen out of favor just in the general population, even though it still does have a big following, is because it might not be that feasible. It's a huge expense, 
um, you know, financially and also time-wise and a really big commitment. And it's long lasting. It's not meant to, you know, necessarily address like just one symptom or the other. It's really taking a whole look at the intrapsychic structure. Yeah. Psychoanalysis is open-ended. Some people are in analysis for many, many, many years. It can be a three to five times a week, depending on, you know, your formal definition. There's something like people sometimes call an elitist quality because mm-hmm. not many people can go to therapy that much, right. both in terms of time and affordability. Right. And it's not generally accessible to people without resources, though there's some interesting work in the analytic field about mm-hmm. about how to make it more egalitarian and accessible. And then, then you can have one time a week therapy, which is referred to usually as psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalytically informed therapy, which is similar, but could be more focused on a particular problem. But a lot of times what brings you in for treatment you kind of work through that and then you have a choice as to whether you want to work on deeper issues or not. I sometimes think of it like a kitchen renovation. Okay. Like do you want to get new like cabinet faces. Pa- faces or get them repainted or do you want to kind of okay. rip everything out? And you know, and people have a lot of hopes and dreams and fears coming into this open-ended kind of therapy because mm-hmm. it's not so here's the goals, here's the time right. frame, here's how I work. Yeah. And I think that sometimes, well, at least what I've seen is there can be a frustration. Like I came in here because I'm so anxious that I can barely function. Why are you asking me about my childhood? Yeah. A lot of that depends on the therapist too and how they work. Um, But that that can come up for sure. Yeah. But I think that it's probably safe to say that psychodynamic therapy is going to look at early childhood experiences, traumas, um, behavioral patterns, and sort of use that to shed light on how you function in the world. Yeah. Psychodynamic therapy uh, has some structure to it though. Yeah, for sure. And, and we can we can get a little more particular about that real quick. Okay. There's a really uh, a paper that made a big hit among psychodynamic therapists by Jonathan Shedler called The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Therapy. And he basically spelled out the the different elements that make a therapy mm-hmm. psychodynamic. One is focus on emotion and expression of emotion. And definitely learning the ropes of your own emotions is, is very helpful for people. The second is exploration of attempts to avoid distressing thoughts and feelings. So avoidance is a, a coping style, which isn't very helpful, though short term, you know, it's helpful to be able to suppress or avoid difficult things until you're ready to or you're able to. Identification of recurring themes and patterns, that's a good way to learn who you are, to know yourself. Because a lot of times these patterns, they're similar in romantic relationships, childhood relationships, yeah. work relationships, yeah. relationship with yourself. But you also don't want to overdo it, right? That's not everything means something. Um, discussion of past experiences, which is a focus on developmental factors, like what did happen early on in life is important in a lot of ways, though it's not the only thing. Focus on interpersonal relationships, focus on the therapy relationship, mm-hmm. what's happening in the room. Yeah. And of course, that's very intimate because you're, you're opening up with someone about what's happening right there with the two of you. At the same time, it's very professional because, you know, they're your therapist mm-hmm. and the relationship is circumscribed, yeah. is limited. Exploration of fantasy life, that's something a lot of people aren't as used to nowadays. Yeah. But, you know, what is your fantasy about that? What are your wishes about that? <laughs> and that taps into desire and, yeah. you know, it's not just for um, Netflix, you know, mm-hmm. fantasies. It's, you have fantasies of your own. Right. What about structured therapies? Okay. So, well, CBT, we... Cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Started by someone who decided he didn't like his analysis, right? (laughs) But he he invented a therapy that has a lot of effectiveness, but it's debated. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
but I have seen amazing results. We had a really great talk with Vicky, and one of the things Doctor Doctor Vicky Gluhowski, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. We have an interview with her, so people can learn a little bit more about the history and function of CBT. But what I like about it is that it's just a pretty constrained type of treatment that takes place over the course of six or eight or twelve sessions. I've seen it open-ended, but there's an idea that you can have a dose of CBT and you can can kind of compare it with taking a medication, sort of a head-to-head comparison. Uh, And there's some research on kind of different types of brain activity, predict whether someone will respond to meds versus cognitive behavioral therapy. And usually with CBT, you identify distorted ways of perceiving things. For example, um, I see myself as bad. And then you identify the specific patterns of thought you have. Then you have evaluate them in between therapy, you do homework, and then you reassess how you feel once you've corrected those unhelpful thinking styles. And if you just keep chipping away at that, it can really be effective for a lot of people, including dealing with trauma by directly addressing the trauma and unlearning the fear response, which sometimes doesn't happen spontaneously in psychodynamic therapies, uh, particularly if the therapist is kind of trying not to be too, too difficult deal with difficult feelings. Yeah. What do you think about DBT? I love DBT. Mm-hmm. Um, and I DBT th- has been very, very good to me. <laughs> it is. It's, it's really great. Um, yeah. And I think underutilized. I think they should teach DBT in every... What is, like, D- what is DBT, Dr. Dialectical White? behavioral therapy. It's sort of the way that I conceptualize it. And I'm not an expert by any means. I think we should try to get an expert. What does dialectical mean? It means from one side to the other. Right. So a lot of people have either or thinking. Yeah. And that's or a borderline personality. Right. And it works for complex trauma and eating yeah. and a lot of other things. So you you split things, right? right? Black and white, yeah. either or. That's dualism, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And dialectic is like a continuum. Right. And I think what's really hard for people who might struggle with some of these traits and where they can benefit from DBT is to see that there is not so much all good or all bad. Like one of the, I think, main things about these modalities is they all, starting with psychoanalysis, which says that a lot of symptoms are rooted in this sort of underlying conflict. Everything else sort of builds on that, right? Like what's the conflict, you know, that people are trying to resolve in DBT? It's that if someone didn't respond to your text message, you know, within 20 minutes, that they're rejecting you, that they hate you. Who waits 20 minutes before getting upset? You have to have really good distress tolerance to wait 20 minutes. I mean, that's like you've had a year of DBT already if you can wait. Okay. Okay. But, you know... I mean, it's Just, like a minute, okay, okay. thirty seconds. But so, so DBT is cool, right? Isn't it? Aren't there kind of steps in DBT or skills yeah, training? Skills training, and one of the big ones is building distress tolerance and ways that people can do that. Right. You start with distress tolerance, yeah. and there's tools and tips. Right. Sometimes it's really simple. Like if I want to injure myself, instead of really hurting myself, I can do something that doesn't cause me to hurt my body so I could hold an ice cube and maybe that'll relieve distress. Or you could snap a rubber band against your wrist. Those are common ones and and there's mental ways. And then what what comes after distress tolerance is it? Well, I I think it's emotion regulation and then mindfulness. Because once you learn how to regulate your own dysregulated emotional states, then you practice mindfulness. That's a big part of DBT. And you learn to sit with your feelings like you're saying. Mm -hmm. So you can look at a conflict and it's not doesn't doesn't feel like the end of the world. Yeah. And the, the last thing that f- informal DBT, 
I think is like interpersonal skills, right. regulation yeah. or training. Right. So a lot of times getting along with people is challenging. Exactly. Yeah. The, and I think the other thing to note about DBT is it's usually sort of administered in a group format and um it may be in a in a clinic yeah even in a structured right. treatment setting yeah and a lot of times the boundaries are really addressed first because in dbt particularly addresses any kind of suicidal thinking immediately because the safety is kind of the first thing you focus right. on and access to the therapist is often really prescribed so yeah. you can call twice a week in crisis but no more than twice a week you have to learn to wait uh, and so a lot of dbt programs have sort of strict criteria for who can do them, but some people do DBT kind of in groups or individually as well. Okay. Um, so the, the frame is very well boundaried in yeah. DBT. That's one of the characteristic features usually. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of other mod modalities, acceptance, commitment therapy, compassion-based therapy, motivational interviewing, and EMDR. there's hordes and hordes. EMDRs, yeah. and we have, we have an episode on that. Yeah. With Johanna Dobrich, Dobrich, yes, which is which is great. interesting. It's uh, a great mm -hmm. treatment for trauma. Yeah, we we could we could go on and on about different. That's one of the yeah. confusing things: is which therapy do I pick right. and which therapist? But most therapies have certain centers or have an association, and that is an easy way to find a therapist that might specialize in the type of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Finding a therapist in a type of treatment is often very challenging, even yeah. in a well-resourced city. Yeah. Okay. And, but then there's who is the therapist. Right. And whether or not it's someone that you could feel connected to, not to connect, I guess, like just the right amount, a comfort level and a sense that this person can really understand you. Right. And that varies a bit with sort of type of therapy as well as therapist personality. In psychoanalytic therapies, the relationship is more important in some ways. In some of the structured treatments, the relationship is important, but it's much more it's much more clinically detached. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I kind of, when you were talking about the therapeutic alliance, and that's one of my favorite terms really, because I like the idea of therapy being someone who can really be on your team. Being on your team doesn't mean necessarily just a supportive therapist who agrees with everything you say, but someone who really wants the best for you and is pushing you. Right. So you think about kind of what type of personality of therapist do you want to work with? Do you want someone who's very confrontational? Do you want someone who's very soft and gentle? Do you want someone who's going to tell you what they think? Do you want someone who's going to wait for you to come up with it? Mm -hmm. And then you have to think about things like demographics, like how old are they, gender of the therapist, the vibe you get from them. You know, sometimes you just like someone right off the bat. You don't always know why. And sometimes you just don't like someone. I think sometimes people find a therapist they really connect with. And, and that's the foundation of a good therapy, especially for long-term therapies, where the relationship is really a critical part of it. If you're working with someone short-term, I think you have to get along with them well enough. But the focus is really on the structured work. And the relationship isn't as important in the same way. It should be something that people look forward to overall. You know, there may be moments where you've had a bad week and you don't want to come face to face or you've made an impulsive decision and it's going to be hard to sit down with a therapist and really look at that. But I think therapy can be really fun. Well, I think a general way of putting that is that it's, you want to feel safe, but not too safe. Right. Um, some people really love therapy. Other people mm -hmm. kind of hold their nose and go to therapy because it's good for them. Right. That can change over time. Yeah. A lot of times I ask patients who say, well, I'm here because I need to be here and I, I hate it, but it's good for me. I want to imagine with them what it would be like to look forward to it because it is an act of self-care. But a lot of times people are in therapy because they essentially have felt 
pushed into it for some reason, you know, mm -hmm. cornered by life or necessity, or sometimes literally someone close to them tells them go to therapy or, you know, I'm leaving. Yeah. You should feel comfortable talking with your therapist about your feelings about your therapist. Yeah. I think there are a lot of things. Um, and I think maybe what you're referring to is what we know is like transference and countertransference and all these other forces that are at play if the therapist reminds you of your favorite babysitter growing up. Um, all of those things do come out, I think, in one way, shape or form. You were someone who wasn't so nice to you. And that can change. Like you're right. saying, transference is kind of like the therapist can be the man or woman of a thousand faces yeah. in, in your mind can take on different things. And one of the weird things with especially psychoanalytic therapies is that part of it is fantasy and, and theater. So mm -hmm. there's a way where what what's happening isn't on the surface, right? And part of the task is to take a step back and, and kind of see it as something to be interpreted. Like you could read a novel in a hundred different ways. You could read a therapist therapy session in a hundred different, you could read your therapist in a hundred different ways. You could read a dream in a hundred different ways. So that's one, of, that's one of the most powerful things about a psychoanalytic model is that, it, well, the entropy of it is very high, meaning that it can be very many different things at once. But the task of making sense of it is, is part of the process and you need a good partner in that. People are not married to their therapist. And I think that's something that comes up a lot, how to terminate the relationship if things are uncomfortable. Or how to terminate the relationship in a therapeutic way. Right. And that's the ideal uh, is, to, is to grieve with someone about the loss and kind of come to terms with the limitations of the mm -hmm. relationship. A lot of times termination brings up issues that you thought you had dealt with, so you don't want to rush it. And sometimes it brings up dependency, mm -hmm. like I never want to leave. Uh, but sometimes therapy can end badly, and that's that's a yeah. shame when it happens. It's sad. It is. It is. And I think that really every therapeutic relationship deserves some sort of resolution. And if the patient decides to leave, then it's unfortunate. We don't always get that. But I do think that's something that a therapist should try to provide, or at least say, I know that you want to end treatment, but why don't you come in and we'll talk about it and have a wrap-up session. Right, without trying to force the person. Unfortunately, sometimes there's a pattern of relationships just ending over and over again that are unresolved, or sometimes it's easier for people to leave, recreating some kind of rupture or yeah. hostility at the end. Right. And you still you know, try to do your best to make it therapeutic. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the responsibility of the therapist is mm -hmm. no matter what, you're always trying to help. Right. Maybe sometimes trying to help causes a problem, but yeah. that's your Hippocratic oath, uh, you know, that you've sworn to try to help. Yeah. This is something that's very much worth a try for anyone, for people that are going through something. And I always say that it's better to try to get into it when it's not a time of crisis. Like just because things are going okay doesn't mean that there's no need uh, to see a therapist. Yeah. I mean, I think you can make a strong case that therapy is not for illness, but it's for wellness. Right. And you could look forward to it the way you might look forward to exercising your body. It's exercising your mind and it can be very good for people. I think Oliver Sacks, the famed neurologist, he said he was in psychoanalysis for, I think it was 44 years yeah. and he did it because it was good brain exercise yeah. for him. Um, so a lot of times people, they go from needing therapy because there's a problem to kind of developing into a deeper, richer, positive type of experience. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, on that note. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. Yeah. You can find us 
on the web and you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening to Doorknob Comments. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individualized treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment.